Good morning. We're continuing through the book of John this morning. So please turn your Bibles to the book of John. We'll be in chapter two this morning. <coughs> chapter two, John chapter two. And we're continuing our journey through the book of John this morning. And we've seen in John chapter one, this glorious description of, of who Jesus is. I think that's what, what John really wants us to see here as he opens up his gospel is the true glory of Jesus right from the start. And he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. That's the whole point of his writing this gospel. We know that from John chapter 20, that he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. And we've seen from the beginning, right out of Right out of the gate, right off the start, Jesus is the word of God. That Jesus is God. Jesus has always been. He is the creator of all things. Jesus is life and he is light. He has overcome the darkness. Jesus came into this world and he, he tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. <laughs> And all who receive him and believe in him are born of God and become children of God and have life in his name. We see all of this just in John chapter 1. We see that, that Jesus is glorious, that he is full of grace and truth, that he makes God known, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only unique Son of God. He is our teacher. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote. He is the one we need to come and see. He is the son of God, the king of Israel, and the son of man. And as we begin chapter two today, we'll see it in the Greek. If you look at the Greek text, and some of your Bibles translate this, it'll say, and on the third day. Some of your translations leave that out, but we see that in, in the Greek text, and, and this is just a continuation of what John has been telling us from, from chapter one. It's all, it's all tightly connected. And so we're going to see in, in chapter two here more about just how glorious Jesus is, Jesus is and what believing in him can do for our, for our lost souls. You know, the, you're many are, are familiar with this. With this story, it's the you know the water being turned into wine at the, at the wedding of Cana, and you can read this at face value and say, well, yeah, Jesus can turn water into wine. He can kind of make something out of nothing, and that's a pretty neat trick. How did he do that? And wow, and you can read it that way, or you could read it as, wow, he he really wanted him to have a great party at the wedding. Or you could read it as, uh, yeah, Jesus is, uh, is exercising his control over creation. You can, you can see it from that perspective. Uh, and those would all be, you know, pretty much right. You know, that, that's what's happening here. But as I was studying this throughout the week, I saw, you know, something maybe a little bit deeper, something maybe a little bit deeper that God wants us to see in the way this whole miracle is being described by the Apostle John. And so let's pray before we dig into the text that God will give us wisdom as we read to understand and see the beauty and glory of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for 
your word. Thank you for this time that we have to dig into your word today. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will help us to see you, Jesus, for, for who you are and for what you have done for us. Help us to see you in all of your glory and all of your beauty. And may our hearts be changed, Lord, through this encounter with your word today. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And may we behold your beauty, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. So let's read through the, the accounts, uh, chapter 2. And then we'll go through it line by line, verse by verse. On, and on the third day, I'll put the and in there. There was a wedding at Cana, chapter 2, verse 1. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, at Ga at Ga Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice that right there, his disciples believed in him. We're going to see that over and over again in John, emphasizing the disciples believed. He wants us to believe today. So as we work through this text, that's, that's where we're going with this, that you would believe and have eternal life in his name. Look at verse one. It says, on the third day, there was the wedding at Cana in Galilee, and his mother was there with Jesus. And, and notice the timing. It was on the third day. Now, now, John doesn't write words by accident, and he doesn't write words you know, just to give, just to waste words. You know, on the third day means something. And then there's a, the conjunction in there, and. So he's been telling us all these great things that Jesus has done. And then he says, on the third day. Think about that. What happened on the third day? Jesus rose from the dead, didn't he? The third day has great significance in the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. It was on the third day that the earth emerged from its watery grave and was clothed with plant life. In the book of Hosea, it says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So, so to the Jewish reader at this time, you know, when someone says on the third day, your ears perk up. It's like, whoa, the third day, that's an important day. 
That's the day God raises us up. It was on the third day that Jonah was freed from the grave of the belly of the fish. On the third day. There's significance to that day. And most of all, on the third day is when Jesus rose from the, the grave. It is the day of resurrection. And now it's on the third day that Christ turns the water into wine. And there's significance to that timing. The third day is when he turns the water into wine, filling Israel's hearts with joy. We're going to get more to that in a minute. <clears throat> so how fitting that Jesus works his first miracle and ushers in the dawn of our redemption on the third day in John's gospel account. So don't miss that. Verse 2, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so we get a little more information there. Jesus' mother was there, his disciples that we just read about in chapter 1, they were there with him. They were all invited. So it could be that this wedding was of a close friend or a family member. We don't really know any details about that. It's just a guess. So under those circumstances, though, running out of wine for the celebration would have been a big embarrassment for the family. I was just at a wedding this weekend. I just got back from a wedding. So all this kind of played out right in front of me. You know, if you run out of, of food, if you run out of drink at your wedding, that's embarrassing. You know, you've invited a hundred and something people here, maybe more, and they've all come for a big party and you're the host of the party. And if you run out of food and drink at your wedding, and that's, that's embarrassing. That is a big problem. You're not just running down to the grocery to like get that stuff, especially at this time. And so it was, this created a big problem. Look at verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine, Jesus. And you know what this is like, especially sons. You know, your mother comes up to you and like, they have no wine, Jesus. You know, it's implied here, do something. <laughs> Take care of this now. Because she had seen all that Jesus could do as he was growing up, I'm sure. All of the things he had, must have done. And we just, you know, they're not recorded all of them. She knew the power that he had. Probably not fully, but she, she knew of it. And so she's like, Jesus, it's on you, buddy. And all of us sons in the room kind of know how that feels when mom comes to us and gives us the directive, right? Say, oh boy, <laughs> better, get, better get work in here. Better, she's telling me what to do. Mom's upset. Mom's upset. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Don't upset mama. Right, so the wine's out. This is a problem, right? This is a problem. <clears throat> so verse three there, the central thing about this account is that the wine had run out. And Mary is very clear. They have no wine. Now, she's not telling him exactly what to do to fix the problem. She's just showing, Jesus, there's a problem. And I need you to get on this. I need you to deal with it. Now, it's very interesting if you look back through the scriptures, as you read the scriptures, you pick up on this. Wine in the scripture, is an, it's an emblem of joy. Now, us in our Baptist circles, we get pretty like hung up about wine and drinking and all that. And I'm not going there with this sermon. Uh, a lot of people do that with this sermon. I'm, I'm not. That's not where this sermon is going. That's not, I, I don't even think that's what this text is meant to teach us about. 
so I'm not going there. But wine in the scripture, if you read through the Old Testament, it is an emblem of joy. You look at Psalm 104, it says, wine makes the heart, makes glad the heart of man. You'll see this, these things used together. You know, wine brings cheer, wine brings joy, wine makes the heart glad. Ecclesiastes 9 says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. And so the connotations from the scripture is, you know, wine makes the heart joyful, glad, cheerful. So you can associate those two things together as we look at the text. There is a problem here. They run out of wine. Now, I'm not saying go drink a bunch of wine to make your heart merry. Don't say Pastor Ryan said that. I didn't say that. These things are associated with each other. Okay? But that's the problem here in the text. They have run out of wine. And don't think that it's just grape juice. Okay? It's not. It's not. Because he said, you, you say the good stuff to the last, right? We'll get to that. So they run out of wine. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her. So here's Jesus' response. Now, a lot of sons who have strong mothers she said, all right mom i'll handle it <laughs> and jesus said to her woman what does this have to do with me <laughs> woman <laughs> all, all the moms are laughing at like whoa careful boy what <laughs> yeah, don't talk to your mamas like this <laughs> you're not jesus my hour has not yet come. And so his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So you got a lot. There's a lot playing out here. There's drama. We got drama going on. Now, it, it's not as harsh as it may seem to us, right? So verse four and five, you can see the interaction between Jesus and Mary. And we read that at face value. And we're like, man, how can he disrespect his mother like that? Call her woman. How rude. It seems so rude and disrespectful, but it's really not given the culture uh, that, that they were living in at the time. Uh, it's not at all. And, and notice what Mary wants Jesus to do. It's, it's like what, what the Jews demanded of him throughout the rest of the book. And so here I'm going to get to a bigger picture of I think what John is trying to help us see. You know, what did the Jews always demand of Jesus? A sign. Show us a sign, Jesus, and we'll believe. Do this for us, Jesus, and we'll believe. We want to see your power, Jesus, and we'll believe. Show us the Father, and we'll believe. It's always show us, show us, do, do, and we'll believe. Now, Mary's not saying, you know, do this and I'll believe, but you can see that, you know, what she's doing is she is demanding of him to do something just as all the others would demand of him to, to do something and show his power. And we know how Jesus responded then, right? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do parlor tricks for you. That's not how I operate. And, and we get a similar response here. Not as, he's not calling her a brood of vipers or anything like that. But uh, he does, you know, push back. Because <clears throat> it's not time yet. And so he knows the intentions of her heart. He gives his response. And, and in the... This is really, if you translate the, the language here, he's really saying, what to you, what to me and to you? That's his little literal response in the Greek. What to me and to you? It was a common Semitic idiom. And it's always used to put some distance between the two parties that are talking. 
His tone wasn't rude, but it was abrupt. What does this have to do with me and you right now? What does this have to do with, with us right now? My hour has not yet come. Mary is dictating to Jesus and telling him what to do. Jesus is pushing back to let her know more of his true plan for saving the world and glorifying God the Father. My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet for Jesus to be humiliated and glorified. Not yet. We see these words often in the book of John. My hour has not yet come. As you read John, you know, read it over and over again. You'll see patterns of things that are set. And this is a phrase that's used commonly in John. My hour has not yet come. In fact, he says that seven times throughout the book. Because there's so many people demanding of Jesus to do certain things. But his hour had not yet come. He has not yet, his, he's saying here as a statement, he is not yet subjected to the will of man. Not yet. But when that hour does come, he will be delivered into the hands of sinners and crucified. But that hour had not yet come. It was not yet time for him to be ordered by man. Instead, he was about his father's business, seeking only to do the will of the father. So he pushes back on, on Mary there, on mom. My hour has not yet come. But she doesn't give up. She looks at the servants, like, do whatever he tells you to do. Because <laughs> she knows he's going to handle it. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. So she accepts his rebuke and leaves the matter entirely into his hands. Fully trusting he's going to handle the situation. <laughs> so as we look at this, you know, we can learn from this. You know, it's not for us to dictate to God. <clears throat> So often in our prayers, we're telling God what to do. God, if you'll just do this, if you'll just do this, you'll, he must be in heaven thinking, boy, these guys think they're so smart. <laughs> I think they got it all figured out. Instead, it's like, let's just trust him. Let's rest in him. And not be dictating what we think he should be doing all of the time. It's for us to express our desires to him. And then leave it to him to supply our needs in his time, and in his way. That's what faith is. That's what trusting looks like. Look at verse 6. Now, there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Those are some big, big pots. 20, 30 gallons? That's a lot. Now, notice a few things about these water jars. There are six stone water jars. Consider the picture. Judaism was still existed as a religious system, but, but it gave no comfort to the heart. So I'm going I'm to use some imagery here. I want to try to draw out some, some imagery here of what may be represented by these six stone water jars. I think... I think John is giving us some images here that, that can help us see the bigger picture of what Jesus is re really doing here. So consider Judaism as a religious system. It gave no comfort to the heart. Matter of fact, all in, in chapter one, we had seen the deadness of Judaism. 
of a religious leader showed up on the scene. Like, who do you think you are? And what do you think you're doing? And criticizing and condemning. There was no life, no joy in the heart, or no true worship in, in all the sacrifices of Judaism. And it degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Israel had lost the joy of their worship. And so he, he's giving us this picture here. These, these were for the Jewish rites of purification. They would fill these jars with water. They would use them to wash and go through all of the rituals that you would read about in the Torah. And so John's giving us this picture here. Six stone water jars used for the, Ju the, the Jewish rites of purification. <clears throat> Notice the number of the jars. How many jars? Six jars. Now, if you read the Bible over and over again, if you study the Bible, you'll know something is significant about the number six. Six is the number of man. It was on the sixth day that man was made. Remember in Revelation chapter 13, we see the number of the beast is what? Six, six, six. These, these aren't accidental numbers here. It's not accidental that there were six stone jars. It's not just a coincidence. So six is the number of man. There are six stone water parts here, not seven, not five. There's six. Seven is the perfect number. Six is the number of men. <laughs> Notice also what they're made of. They're made of stone. They're made of stone, likely like big clay pots, perhaps. And what are those pots like when they're empty? They're dry, they're brittle, they're hard, they're stone, they're like rock. Notice also that these jars are empty. They're not filled with water for the rites of purification. They're empty. And so you could look at these, these jars sitting here and you could see, wow, what John could be helping us to see is a vivid portrayal of Israel's condition at the time. Dry, <coughs> empty, stone-hearted people especially the religious leaders of the time. He's helping us to see through this miracle account, the dire condition of his people. And, and then he brings the focus to Jesus, the one who saves and brings joy to the heart. That's what Jesus does. <coughs> Look at verse seven. So Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Now in verses seven and eight, notice who's doing the work in the miracle. Who's doing the work? The servants are doing the work. Christ is the one who works the miracle, yet the servants are the ones who seem to do all the running around. And that's a lot of work, right? They're taking these, these stone jars, which are very large, they're probably heavy, and they're filling them with all this water. Can you imagine how heavy they are when they're full of water? I mean, 30 gallons of water, pick up a gallon of water and you go home. That's heavy. 
about over here, uh, you know, as we have our fellowship time, filling up those big water things, you know? That stuff's heavy. Water's heavy. So the servants are the ones doing all the work here, and they seem to do everything. They fill the water pots. They, they draw off the wine. They take it to the master of the feast. Jesus does no visible work here. You're not going to see, he didn't say abracadabra or shalom or, or anything like that, you know? No visible work here. He didn't even say anything. There's no magical formula that made the water turn into wine. The means he used to do it, though, were human. Go fill the water, the, the pots with water. Go do that. I mean, he could have filled the pots with water. Couldn't he? Of course he could. So why does he go through all of this? Why does he say, you know, go through all that? What's he trying to show us with this? Well, well God uses people to work his, his will and his way. He uses people, you and me, ordinary servant people, to show his glory. And that's what he's doing here. <laughs> so the means that were used were human, but the result was divine. He shows us here that God is pleased to use ordinary people like you and me in performing the wonders of his grace. Now, the miracle that's done here is the water is then turned into wine. Which we learned a little earlier symbolizes joy in God. So the Lord is pleased to use people in bringing joy to the heart's of men and women, you and me, he uses ordinary people to do that. Now, notice the element that Christ uses to produce the wine. He uses water. And what do we know about Jesus? He's the living water. He uses water. He is the living water. And it's his servants that proclaim his gospel and bring the living water to human hearts, which is made into the wine of joy in our souls. So this, this miracle at the wedding in Cana is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does in our hearts and in our lives. <laughs> He fills the emptiness of our dry and stony hearts with his living water and joy. And notice what else? He fills it to the brim. He's not leaving it half full, half empty, even three quarters or, you know, a little bit extra. So in case they move it, it doesn't spill. No, he fills it to the brim. Meaning anymore, and it's going to pour over. There is nothing left to desire. Nothing left to desire. So do you see that picture there? And that, now you might look at that and say, wow, that's kind of a reach. Well, maybe it's a reach, but wow, it's beautiful, isn't it? Because that's what we're like. We're like these jars of clay, the scripture says. That, that inside of us, these jars of clay, great treasure is put in our hearts that we go and share with this lost and, and dying world. 
And for those who are lost, who haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, you're like that dry, stony pot that's empty and cobwebby inside. You know, you look in there, it's dusty and cobwebby and nasty, and there's probably dead bugs in there and stuff. That's what we're like without Jesus in our lives. And what does God do? God takes that dry, stony, dirty, nasty old pot that's dusty, and he, he, he takes that and he cleans it out. He cleans it out. He makes us clean. And he fills us with living water. The, the Bible says, come all who are thirsty and drink freely of the living water, which is Jesus. <laughs> and, and that dead, stony heart has life. We're made alive in him. That's what trusting in Jesus does in our hearts and in our soul. We, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but he makes us alive together in Christ. His living water fills our souls and our hungry and thirsty souls cry out and we're, we're made alive in him. And we drink from the living water, which always satisfies us perfectly. It's not like the water of this world that makes us thirsty again and again and again. And so, so we, we then have life in his name through believing. We're filled with the living water. And then what happens next? That's not where it ends. No, what happens next is that water is turned into the wine of joy and cheer and gladness in the Lord. Some of us walk around as believers, and, and we're still in that place of, yeah, we have the living water, but, yeah, we got the frown on our face, and, you know, I'd rather just want to eat worms and die, and life is so hard, and there's so many struggles, and, and I just don't know if I'm going to make it every day, and, you know, we just, we're, the joy isn't there. Where is our joy? And, and Christ wants us to see here, I don't just make you alive. I turn that water into the wine of the gladness and joy of God in your heart. For the believer in Jesus, we have the new wine living in our, our souls. We have the wine of the gladness of God in our hearts. We can have joy and gladness in him, no matter what the circumstances of life. Through faith in him and trusting in him, the Lord Jesus. And no matter how difficult things may, may be, and I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't, you know, be a little, be upset when bad things happen to us. That's not what I'm getting at. Bad things are going to happen to us. We will struggle and suffer in this world. But in those moments, we have a God who cares. We have a Savior who has given us life and will give us joy in the depths of our souls, even in the, the midst of the greatest sufferings we could ever experience. You know, read the, the voice of the martyrs' interviews from the persecuted church throughout the world. You hear what they go through, losing their businesses, their homes. They're, they're cut off from their families. They have no place in the world. Just like this, Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, these people don't either. And what did they say? Oh, you know, I, I have joy in the Lord. I have gladness in Christ my Savior. Pray for my persecutors that God would save them. Now, how can someone say that? They can say it because God has taken that stony, dry pot and has given it living water and turned that water into the wine of joy in Christ. That's how they can say that. 
And when all is stripped away and they have nothing but ashes and dust of the home that they once had, even their families have, have been killed, they can say, I rejoice in the Lord who has saved me, who I will see someday. And that's, that's the picture that, that John wants us to see here. And we're not through. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom. So I want to pause right there. Notice the servants know where the blessing comes from, but the master has no idea. Isn't it that way? Isn't that the way the Lord usually works? He, he uses the humble servants of the world for his glory. Not those in power, not those with rank or prestige or a title, who have so-called knowledge and authority. It's the humble servant that God uses for his glory. The servants knew where the wine came from, the master had no idea. And so the master tastes the wine. He's going to take it to the, the bridegroom. In verse 10, he says to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have gotten drunk, basically, he says they drunk freely, but it really means when people have gotten <laughs> drunk, then they serve the cheap wine. Because the taste buds are dulled and they, they don't really know what's going on because they're half drunk or maybe fully drunk. So they don't even know it's the bad wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus saves the best wine for last. So if you care to see it, observe the lesson of the wine. Jesus gives the best wine last. This illustrates the way of God with men. And it's opposite of the way the world works. The world gives its best first and keeps the worst for last. First, the pleasures of sin for a season. Then the wages of sin, death. And you know what that's like. The world will entice you with temptations and pleasures and you'll run after those. And they seem so great at first. Oh, this is wonderful. It feels so good. No one's getting hurt. Everything is going to be fine. Like the prodigal who then ends up eating the pods of swine with the pigs. The worst comes last. It's the way it is with the world. And it's a warning to us. Don't even take one step into a temptation. You got a choice to make. Am I going to? Do what is right and serve the Lord, or am I going to follow after the world and sin here? You choose the Lord. Don't even take the first step down that nasty path. It's going to seem so great at first, but it's going to end up in death and destruction for you and your family and others. So you stay away from sin. Run from it. So with the world, the best is first, the worst is last. But with God, it's the opposite. You say, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Anyone who's believed in the Lord knows that it's not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. What does God do with his people? He brings them through the wilderness. Then the promised inheritance. 
First the cross, then the crown. For the believer, the best wine is yet to come. We're just pilgrims passing through this place. What the Bible says. We're sojourners in a foreign land. This is not our home. This is not the best that's yet to come. This isn't it. Even in the United States of America, where we got everything we need and a thousand times more. This isn't it. And we will have sufferings. We will have struggles. We will have trials. But with the, with the Lord, the best is yet to come. The best will come last. So stay strong in your faith. Persevere to the end. Look at verse 11. This is the first, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the beginning of the miracles Jesus did. And that is precisely what the new birth is. When you believe in Jesus, you are born again. And that miracle, that is the miracle of salvation. And it's always the beginning of miracles in the life of a new believer. Notice the type of the miracle that he uses here. He turns water into wine. You know, as we observe the Passover, the wine represents the blood of the lamb. As we observe the Lord's Supper, the wine represents the blood of Christ. So here we're given another picture, a picture of life and joy in this miracle. And we're also reminded that it is the blood of Christ that makes eternal life and joy possible in our own hearts. Without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the wine also represents foreshadowing of what's to come. Jesus' blood poured out for us, for our salvation. For God's people to have true joy, eternal joy, the precious blood of Jesus must be poured out. And right here in verse 11, it says, in this, his glory is manifested. In this, his glory is shown. John's telling us these things so that we can see how glorious and beautiful Jesus is. And that by seeing that, we will believe. We'll believe in him. And that's why he's emphasizing here in verse 11, his disciples believed in him. His disciples saw this and believed in him. You have now read this, heard this with your own ears. You probably envisioned it in your minds. You've seen it in your minds. Will you believe in him today? Will you trust in him today as his disciples did? They believed in him and they saw this. And so that's our, our call today. See, hear, believe. That's what John wants us to do right now. Believe in Jesus right now. To the unbeliever here who's never trusted the Lord, the miracle has a clear message for you. The wine the master served first is like the wine of the world. It may taste sweet and provide joy temporarily, but it runs out. The wine of this world 
always runs out. There is carnal happiness enjoyed by the pleasures of sin, but it is all fleeting and unsatisfying. Eventually, it will taste like ashes in your mouth. The world will. It will run out. There is only one who can give the true and good wine, and that is the Lord Jesus. Only he can satisfy the thirsty soul. Only he can satisfy the longing of your heart. Only he can put a new song in your mouth, a song of redemption and praise to our God. So what must you do? What price must you pay? Simply turn from your sins and believe in him today. Trust in him today for your salvation. To those of us who are believers, we're reminded again and again and again to come to the Lord and drink freely of the living water. And have the joy and cheer in our hearts through believing in him. Jesus is the true vine. We are the branches. So I want to encourage us today, brothers and sisters, when our hearts are dried up and stony from the sufferings and trials of this world, look to Jesus and be filled to the brim with joy and peace that only he can give. For all of us today, believe in Jesus and find rest and refreshment and satisfaction for our weary souls. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.